This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. So we're in Philippians chapter 2. Now the last couple of studies that we've done in chapter 2 has been kind of slow going because we hit two paragraphs that were absolutely loaded and they carried very good, very heavy, or I should say substantial messages in them or lessons in them, but it should pick up a little bit after this. We left off last week in chapter 2, round about verse 14. We actually picked up in verse 13 where we said, or Paul the Apostle says, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then he carries on in the next paragraph. He says to do all things without murmurings and disputings because it's good and right that we should be that way. That's just called being an adult. Amen. Amen. Murmurings and disputings are for the young and the immature and for children. I'll do it, but I'm sure going to make you pay a price for my obedience. But the Apostle Paul tells us not to be like that. He says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. It's better to have a positive attitude. And he gives us the reasons why in the verses following that. In verse 15, he says, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And the core of that lesson there, as we taught last week in, in some considerable depth, was that we've got to remember we're representatives of the kingdom of God. And so as representatives of the kingdom of God, we want to have the right attitude and we want to have the right kind of spirit. And as being bearers of the light, which is what he's talking about being here in this paragraph, if we're bearing the light, if we're holding forth the word of life, as he says in verse 16, we got to remember that the world needs that. He says it here. Let's just as a quick review. Let's let's look a little bit deeper again into verse 15. He says that ye may be blameless and harmless. So and all of that's oriented towards all of that points toward being above reproach, living a life that is beyond rebuke, that is without rebuke, because you're not doing anything wrong that would warrant a rebuke from someone. That's the goal. That's the ideal here. But he says it. That, we're, that we have to be this way in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation. We know that we're living in a fallen world and we know that we're living in a wicked society. And if you've got more than about 20 years of life under your belt, so to speak, then surely you have seen the degrading of human society and American society over time. And if you've been alive many decades, then you've seen a lot more of that downward slope, of that downward trend in our society and, and the types of lives that people live, the morals that they've upheld, the standards that they used to have. There are a lot of things that have plummeted in terms of standards, in terms of ethics and morality over the last, I could say even 40 years just out of my own memory. And I know it's been going on even longer than that. You track historical trends. You notice when we seem to take a real big dip in or a uh, um, a big dip in ethics or a dip in morals and in standards and things like that. And so we see it. We know we're living in a wicked society. They need, desperately, they need 
examples of people that are not going the same route. And so while nonconformity is kind of popular right now, it's important to remember that as Christians, we're called to a certain degree of nonconformity where the world is concerned. We're not to be like them. We're not to run to the same excess of riot, to use Paul's language from another letter. Uh, we're, not, we're not to live the same manner of life as them as far as the wickedness and the corruption and the dishonesty, what Paul describes as crookedness and perversity here in verse 15 of this, uh, of this paragraph in chapter 2 here. We're not to be like that. We've got to shine as lights in the world. And it's one reason why some people never come to Christ, because the people that wear and bear the name of Christ do not not live the life. They don't do it. They'll go to church, they'll name the name of Christ, but they're not backing it up with the life that they're living. And we know we're not talking about being saved by the works of our hands, all right? We're talking about living a life that is commensurate with our calling in Jesus Christ. Are we sons and daughters of God? If we are, we need to be living like it. And a large part of that is being blameless. And it's not, now here's where, it gets, here's where the misunderstandings come in. It's like, oh, well, I'm still living in sin, but I'm still blameless. No. Sin carries blame with it by default. And we dump our sins at the feet of the cross when we first got saved, and all of that was wiped off the map. We got a clean slate and a new start, and we can move forward from there. And we are blameless from that time forward, but it doesn't mean that we continue in a life of sin, heaping on new blame to ourselves for the new offenses that we commit against God. We ought not to be living that kind of a life. We should not. We must not be. Because if we can, then we cannot shine as lights in the world, as he says here in verse 15. We cannot hold forth the word of life, as he says here in verse 16. And then he brings up the reason even for all of that. He says, at the back end of that verse, he says, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Was Paul looking for some reassurance that his efforts concerning the Philippian Christians was not efforts made in vain. But I can tell you this, regardless of what anybody else does, regardless of anybody else's decisions, your efforts for the Lord are never in vain. They're never in vain doesn't matter what someone else's decisions are. If you have labored in the harvest field for God, so to speak, if you've reached out to another soul for Christ, say, well, I'm discouraged because none of them are listening to the gospel. None of them, doesn't seem like any of them really want Jesus in their life. And so it's, it's discouraging to me. Well, don't let it be discouraging to you because you have still planted, you have still sown, and you have still watered. And you have no idea what seeds were already there in that person's mind and heart and life that you just put water on. And you don't know what's going to happen to that person in the next five years or even in the next 10 years that's going to turn their heart back to God. You never know. So don't fall into the discouragement of the devil that what you're doing in your efforts to reach another person for Christ are in vain. Your efforts are not. Even if you never reached one person for Christ, you have no idea what your efforts have actually contributed to in the bigger picture of things, in the greater scheme of things. And I've seen that happen myself. I knew a man in our way back in the early 90s. He was a good brother. He was married, but his wife wasn't with him. She was in another part of the country. He was in the army. He was just like brand new in the army. He had just gotten out of training and was stationed at Fort Lewis. And he was in our church. He was a good fellow. And I had 
given him an older Bible that I had because I think I'd gotten another one. I had a bunch of notes in my Bible and I hadn't thought of it after I'd given it to him. This isn't um, anything beyond. It's actually pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. I just gave it to him because I'd gotten another one. Years later, I finally met his wife at a church conference. And she said, my husband gave that Bible you gave to him. He gave that one to me. He said, and I read the notes that you had in that Bible. And in, in so many words, she said, it was a, a, because of that, she had accepted Christ. And I didn't know anything about that when it was going on. And so there's no room to boast or anything because I, I, I hadn't acted with any intent other than just making notes in a Bible for my own behalf. I didn't realize that that was going to end up blessing somebody else's life through no control of my own. And another person ended up coming to Christ as a result of it. You have no idea how you inspire people without even trying. Just don't be discouraged. Your efforts are not in vain. So let's just call that quits for the review and let's jump right into the new stuff. So verse 17, Paul says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. What was he saying here? If if it's gonna if I be offered up as a sacrifice, or he says, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy. If it costs me something in the service of your faith, that's fine. That's what Paul was saying here. If I be offered up upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you. And for the same cause, he says in verse 18, you also rejoice in me. What was this? It was unity of joy. They did not mind being spent on one another's behalf. The Philippian Christians there in the church in Philippi and the apostle Paul who had ministered unto them and had reached out to them from his prison in Rome. He said, if it costs me something, that's fine. If, it, if I be a sacrifice for it, that's fine. But verse 19, he says, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you that I may also be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like minded who will naturally care for your state for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. Let's stop right there. What was he saying here? Well, let's take it from verse 19 again. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I may also be of good comfort when I know your state. Okay, so he's talking about sending Timothy, Timotheus or Timothy, which we have two letters in the New Testament later on that were addressed to him by Paul, first and second Timothy. Timothy, Paul was Timothy's mentor. You could say, worked very closely with him. And even he says, even in verse 22, he says, but you know the proof of him that as a son with the father, he hath served with me in the gospel. What was he saying in this whole paragraph? I'm sending you a pastor. I'm sending you a pastor who will naturally care for your state. And he shared his dilemma right here in verses, verses 20 and 21. Paul shared his dilemma. He says, for I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. He was saying, I'm sending Timothy to you, O church at Philippi, so that you can have a pastor who will care for your state, your spiritual state, your walk with God, the life that you live. That's what preachers, that's what pastors especially are supposed to do. They're not supposed to be detached and, and uh, disinterested in the lives 
of the people that attend the churches that we minister to. Not supposed to be hands off, so to speak. I'm not saying that we're domineering and try to be nosy and getting all up in people's lives, but we are to be naturally concerned for the state of the congregations that God has placed in our charge. What kind of a man of God isn't concerned? Oh, well, it's their life, it's their business. I wouldn't want that kind of a pastor. I want a pastor over me that God talks to about me. That's the kind of pastor I want over me because then that pastor can get up behind a pulpit on a Sunday or a whatever, whatever day is midweek service is, a Thursday, excuse me. He can get up behind a pulpit with a message that he's prayed over and that, that he's gotten from God himself and that he can preach and he can preach it with impunity, sure, but I know it's gonna be something that speaks to me. And that's going to it's going to strengthen me. It's going to convict me. It's going to challenge me so that I don't fall into the trap of routine Christianity. And it's a joy to my heart whenever I hear that someone's got an appetite for the word that is above the conventional Sunday morning only type of experience. It's absolutely a joy to hear when someone has an appetite for more than that. They want to be in a Bible study. They want to be in a midweek service. They want something that's going to fill that, that space in between Sundays. Amen? It's a joy. It really is. He's saying, I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For, and, it, and he says why? For all seek their own. It's like these men that were supposed to be ministers... They were supposed to be, and a minister is supposed to be someone who is who lays down his own life for the sake of the sheep. He's supposed to be willing to be a living sacrifice for the sake of the body of Christ and the people that are in the body of Christ, because that's what makes up the body of Christ, the people who are in the body of Christ. But he was saying that, what he was implying that all others that he knew that would otherwise fit that role were only interested in their own affairs. That was a real tragedy. He said, I've got no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. You guys need a pastor, but I don't have anybody to send to you except Timothy because nobody but Timothy is like-minded. Nobody but Timothy has the same priorities in this matter. He says, for all seek their own. They were chasing their own jobs. They were chasing their own priorities. They were chasing their own projects. They were always working on the car, so to speak. Obviously, they didn't have cars. They were always working on their homes. They were always doing this. They were always doing that. They were taking... You can fill it in with any number of different things. But for a person to be like-minded with Paul, they had to be willing to take all of those affairs of life, everything from the car to the job to the family to the white picket fence to the hobbies to the whatever they were, and put all of those things in the back burner for the cause of Christ. And God gives time to manage those things anyway when we're faithful about it, when we put God first in our lives. So he's sending, what he's saying was, I'm sending you Timothy because he's the only man like-minded. He's the only man like-minded. And he says in verse 22, but ye know the proof of him. So Timothy was evidently someone that the Philippian Christians had already met or known. But ye know the proof of him that as a son with the father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently as soon as I see how it shall go with me. 
but I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. What was he saying? Well, you have to remember that when Paul wrote this letter, he was in prison in Rome. This was the fourth, as some count it, one, two, three, four. This was the fourth of his prison letters, letters that he wrote from prison. He wrote to the, this one to the church in Philippi. He wrote others to other churches as well. But while in prison, that's what he was talking about in verse 23. Him, therefore, I send, I hope to send presently as soon as I know how it will go with me. In other words, as soon as I find out what's going on with me in my prison sentence, and maybe as soon as I can get cut loose from this jail cell, then hopefully I'll be coming along too, and I'm sending Timothy your way ahead of time. Verse 25. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. So what's this? Now he's introducing someone else to us. Who's Epaphroditus? Well, Epaphroditus was a member of the Philippi church. He was a member of the, of the church there in Philippi. And he was the one that they had sent to Paul. The church in Philippi had sent Epaphroditus to Paul to take something to him there, a gift, I believe it was. And then while he was there with Paul in prison, not that Epaphroditus was a prisoner, I don't think he was, but he was visiting Paul in prison. So praise God, he was able to actually get visitors. Um, so while he sent him there, while he was there, he fell ill. And he was sick almost unto death. We'll read about that in just a moment. And then after he recovered, Paul sent Epaphroditus back with this letter to the church in Philippi. That's why he says he was a companion in labor. He was a fellow soldier, but he's your messenger. And he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all. It's verse 26. He longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that he had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. God knows when to cut his people a break. Amen? He knows when you're slogging through a hard time, even when you're going through a, a season of hard times, and it seems like you just can't cut a break. And then just when it seems like you're at your, your, your breaking point or your quitting point, because that's what it actually is, is quitting. When you're at your quitting point, then he cuts you a break and he has some mercy on some other aspect of your life and it brings some relief. That's a blessing. That's exactly what had happened here with Paul and Epaphroditus. He said in verse 28, I sent him therefore the more carefully that when you see him again, you may rejoice and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death regarding not his life to supply your lack of service towards me. So there's almost even like a little jab in here. Now the letter overall, all three or four chapters of the book of Philippians is, a, is overall it's a very joyous letter and there's a lot of commendation here and a lot of praise that he heaps upon the Philippian Christians for the things that they've been doing right. But it almost seems like he's almost uh, slipping this one in under the ribs, so to speak. While praising Epaphroditus, he said, hold this man in reputation when he comes back to you. When he comes back to you, church in Philippi, when he comes back to you bearing this letter from me, you hold him in reputation because he almost died in the service of the Lord. He did not regard his life. He was not concerned about his own health. He suffered the hardships to deliver your gift to me and, and I'm sending him back carefully to you so that he doesn't die along the way. You hold him in reputation is what he was telling them. Respect him because of what he has given up and what he's gone through for the cause of Christ. 
And even in that he slipped that in there too about supplying their lack of service towards Paul. We don't really know the details about what that lack was. Maybe they took too long to get Epaphroditus to him. I don't know. I have no idea. It doesn't really elaborate on it. And so we're left to just speculate. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Now what's that? What's that he's talking about? Rejoice in the Lord. Okay, well that's self-explanatory. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. So evidently he was, in this letter, he was writing things to them that he had already spoken, at least some of the things that he had already spoken to them, spoken to them of in times past. If you remember what he dealt with a lot in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, especially in the beginning of chapter 2, the things that Paul was talking about a lot of was a call to unity, a call to humility, and a call to service to one another as members of the body of Christ, as fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in the family of God. That was kind of a, a recurring theme in the first two chapters, and he really digs down uh, or bears down, and it doubles down on it at the beginning of chapter 2. So in the beginning of chapter 3, he says to write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous. He's saying, I don't mind repeating myself, but for you it is safe. Now, I recently heard a criticism about the Bible studies, actually. It was a, a person that had said something about, um, well, it seems like you're covering a lot of entry-level stuff. And the first thing that came to mind in response to that, well, you got to teach the basics sometime. And repetition is a marvelous teacher. Can I get an amen on that? Because especially if you've been a, a Christian for any number of years, you've heard a lot from the Word of God. And as you read throughout the letters of Paul in particular, and you read throughout the Old Testament, the various books of the Old Testament, you read throughout the New Testament, the letters of Paul and, and of the other apostles as well, you, you find that they touch on a lot of the same things more than once, don't they? And so you get some repetition there. And what does it do? It reminds us and it reinforces us. Paul's saying here is that sure to write the same things to uh, write the same things to you to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. There is safety in the reinforcement of fundamental principles of the Christian life, of the basic doctrines of what we believe in, because that's one of the hazards. And I recently came across an article that talked about you know three hazards of quitting going to church, of leaving going to church, you know, and still ostensibly identifying as a Christian, but you're just like, oh, I'm busy, God understands, I got things to do, I just can't make it. And then the next thing you know, you're not going at all, because that's a slippery slope once you start down that road. One of the very first things that you lose when a, when a, believe, that a believer loses when they stop attending a church regularly is they cease to be reminded of the things they already know. Obviously, they cease to learn things that are new, and they cease to be reminded of the things that they already know. And it's easy to forget the stuff that you already know. And so reinforcement is good. The human mind is powerful, and it is, it, is, it is more complex than anything else in the known universe. That's not poetry. That is a scientific fact. It is more complex than anything else that we know of in the universe. I heard one person, a credible source, actually saying that there were actually there were more um, there were more connections within the human brain. Those uh, 
neurons or whatever it is, those neurological pathways that get formed between the different parts of the brain. There are more of those in, the, in a single human brain than there are, I think, stars in the galaxy or stars even in the universe. It's a, it is something on the order of trillions. I mean, it, it, it's, un, it's uncountable how many neurological, how many neuron connections that there are in the brain. And I'm not a physician, so forgive me if I'm, if I'm jumbling up the terminology on this. But even with as complicated, as, as, as phenomenal an organ as the human brain is, it's still a leaky jar. It really is. And we forget stuff. If we don't reinforce it and, re, and review it and be reminded of it on a fairly regular basis, I'm not saying you have to hear the same thing over and over again every single week. But so when we lay out of church and just sort of start coasting on what we've received in the past, we cease to be reminded, and it never goes in a direction that's good. It really never does. And I've heard more than one, at least one testimony, if not more than one testimony of people that, you know, just for whatever reason, they couldn't find a church that they liked or that they felt like they were being fed in, and so they just tried making it on their own and doing their own thing. And they found themselves in a bad place spiritually, and that's when they learned. It's like, this is not going to work. We are going to do more than just read our Bibles together on, around the table on a Sunday morning. We are going to find a house of God and be in it and put down some roots and grow and watch God move in our lives. So this statement here, to write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you, it is safe. It's safe to hear the same fundamental truths that we've heard before. It reminds us and it reinforces. It reinforces it literally physically in our brains. It reinforces it. It strengthens those neurological pathways. And, and it strengthens it in our spirit and in our soul as well. Verse 2. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now we're opening up fairly deep teaching here, but we're not going to run over time tonight. What we're going to do is we're going to touch on this right now, and then next week, be it the will of the Lord, when we come back for Bible study, we're going to dig into this whole paragraph in some real depth, because Paul starts breaking out some heavy-duty credentials that were, are impressive to the Jews, but don't mean a whole lot to the Gentiles. And he frames them all in a good context and, and reinforces this thing that he starts talking about, about worshiping God in the spirit, rejoicing in Christ, and having no confidence in the flesh. But let's look at this opening verse here. Verse two in chapter three. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. All right, that's not self-explanatory. Let's get a little bit of explanation on this. What does this mean? Beware of dogs? Is he talking about literal dogs? I hope not. This is Cheyenne. Man, we got dogs everywhere. He's not talking about being aware of being being wary or wary of literal dogs. Another another interpretation of that, another translation of that uses the word cur, C-U-R. Some of you have heard that in stilted cartoon dialect from your childhood. It's not a word that we really hear in the English language very often. What's a cur? Well, a cur is an ill-tempered and aggressive dog, okay? So when, when used as a description for a person, and that's obviously what it is here, because he's talking about things that are all human things, or even though he's using the word dogs, 
You've heard people call dogs. That's actually a compliment in some subcultures in America. You refer to somebody, oh, sorry about that dog. I have never liked that. I've never gone by that. I've never considered that something that's even approaching appropriate. He's saying, beware of people with that kind of temperament, unclean people in the spiritual sense. And he says, beware of evil workers. And then he says, beware of the concision. Well, what's that? Well, it kind of clarifies it in the very next verse. He says, for we are the circumcision. Well, concision is, uh, it comes from the same root word as circumcision. They both speak of scission, which means to incise or cut something, right? Thus we have incisors, our two front teeth, those rabbit teeth that can bite through vegetation really good. You know, well, why are they called incisors? Well, because they incise, they cut, they break through material. And when a surgeon performs a surgery, he takes a scalpel and makes an incision into the flesh. He says here, beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision. Well, we know what circumcision is from the law of Moses, don't we? That was part of the law. It even predated the law, to be honest, but it was written into the law. It was codified into the law as well, I believe. The eighth day after a male child is born, not a female child, but a male child, they were to be circumcised. It means that they were to be incised and cut in a circular fashion. You don't need a visual aid. You know what we're talking about. Okay, it's kind of obvious. He says, we're of the circumcision. The circumcision under the law of Moses spoke of a, a literal uh, surgical procedure to mark those male children as being part of the people of God and heirs to the contract of, or beneficiaries to the contract with God that the Jews have. To this day, they still have it, okay, though they're, they're being set on the shelf at the moment until God comes back around and deals with them again in, uh, in future prophecy and things that have been prophesied of in the Word. So he speaks of the circumcision in the Old Testament. It talked about that operation in the New Testament. The circumcision speaks of that circumcision of the heart. It is, it isn't, that, that earlier circumcision was symbolic of the change that is wrought in us by Jesus Christ. So the cutting away of what it was in the Old Testament being a metaphor for the cutting away of sin away from our nature and our inner person. And Paul talks about that extensively in his church of the letter in Rome, which we'll get to by and by in this series of letters. And it'll probably be one that we go into and come back out of as we go. But he says, we're of the circumcision. Speaking of that circumcision of the heart, he's telling them to beware of the concision. People that would mutilate your bodies. What does he mean by that? You can take this to mean, in equal measures, you can take this to refer to more than one different group of people. You see, in the early days of the church, one of the things that the apostles had to combat were the well-meaning and the sometimes not well-meaning efforts of Jews to Judaize the believers, to Judaize Christians, especially among the Gentiles. That's one reason why there's, there's always been kind of a, a separation between uh, Jews who accepted Christ and Gentiles who accepted Christ. It's why they ended up having different apostles minister to those respective groups because there was within the Jews who had accepted Christ a constant recurring misunderstanding about needing to get 
uh, needing to get Gentile Christians uh, to obeying the law because they they'd been raised under the law. The Jewish Christians had been raised under the law, and, and they were they were still learning where where their place was in the big picture of all of that, and learning that the law, that, excuse me, that living under grace and that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all of those things that was in the law, and that it wasn't something that they needed to trouble the Gentile Christians with. And this came up over in the book of Acts. We've read about it, and it, it comes up again. They dealt with it, and they, they put a nail in it pretty well, actually. said, don't trouble them. And he gave them like four commandments to hold on to out of that. He told them to abstain from fornication, from pollution of idols, and don't eat blood and things strangled, so things like that. So he made that clear that that should have nothing to do with their lives. But he's telling them there, beware of the concision. Beware of those that would that are trying to get you to undergo some sort of a physical change when it isn't necessary. So the Jew, the Jewish Christians wanted the Gentile Christians to be circumcised because they just had that hung up in their minds and they could not let it go. Okay? And I'm not finding fault for them for that. Had we been Jewish Christians in those days, we probably would have been of the same attitude. But it wasn't just the Jewish Christians that sought to, to, to see something like that done, okay? There were other groups of people that were not Christians at all that practiced in their various pagan religions because you have to remember that Philippi was not necessarily a Jewish city. It was a Gentile city with a Gentile church and a Gentile culture and had Gentile religions that were active within that city as well. And so there were other groups that practiced different types of physical mutilation as a as a part of their worship and their religious observance and things like that. And sometimes it was just plain vanity. It was just plain vanity, wanting them to pierce their noses and things like that or split their tongues because there are people that do that to this day. You want to talk about crazy, you know, to mutilate themselves and get all tatted up because tattoos are something that have been around for thousands of years. He's saying beware of that sort of thing. Beware of, the, of any group, whichever group it is, that's trying to get you to mutilate and mark yourself all up. You have to remember something, Christians. You're the temple of the Holy Ghost, aren't you? So what do I do if I already have tattoos? Well, worry about it. What's done is done. But it's like, don't go out and get more, you know? And if you, I'm not saying, you know, go get them surgically removed. If you can afford it, go for it. But from what I understand, that's a very expensive procedure. It's just one of those things that's like, all right, well, that was part of my old life. I'm not going to add to that, you know. I'm not going to punch any more holes in my body. I'm not going to perforate my ears all the way up around the top ring of it and you know, put 50 studs in it and a chain that links around to my nostril. There was a guy who did that back in the 90s, Arsenio Hall. Anybody remember him? That's a big no name anymore. I don't know where that guy went. He fell off the face of the earth. But he was in a movie where he had, or some show where he was just wearing some crazy thing, a chain between his nose and his ear. Like, what's wrong with you? Was our body made to have that done with it? Does that bring glory to God? Look at me. I'm disfigured. Now, beware, he says. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. That's self-explanatory. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit. It's a
It's a contrast that he's bringing forth there. We are the circumcision, he says. The circumcision of the heart is what he's referring to. Which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. We don't rejoice in the decorating of ourselves or the mutilating of ourselves. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. That's where our joy is. That's where our confidence is. And therefore, he says, and have no confidence in the flesh. We don't put all our eggs in the basket of the flesh, so to speak. We don't regard that as being worth anything in the eternal sense of things because we know everybody grows old and eventually dies. Nobody's going to dodge that bullet except the Lord take us away in the rapture. Granted, Lord Jesus in his time, in God's good time. And then he says this, and we'll bring it to a close with this. Verse 4, he says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more, he says, circumcised the eighth day. And this is where he begins to actually break down all of his credentials. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So like right off the top of his head, the Apostle Paul rattles off like seven credentials that among purely Jewish circles would have made him, and did in times past, made him a man of renown. But what was he saying? Was he bringing all this up to, to, uh, to heap glory and honor upon himself? No, because next week when we dig into the next paragraph, we're going to see what he does to all of those credentials. He basically puts them in his place and lets the believers in Philippi know, I've got plenty of cause to have confidence in the flesh, but I tell you right now, it's all worthless. It's all worthless. It's in Christ we have our confidence. It's in Christ we have our joy. It's in Christ we're all of Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash giving.